The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. So we'll be looking at the scriptures. There's a lot, according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that transpired the beginning of the Jewish day called Friday, which for us actually would have begun yesterday, Thursday, as the sun went down and all the way up until tonight, till the sun goes down is how the four Gospels account for what happened on that Friday. And most of those events we won't have opportunity to look at tonight because there's so much information. So you can go to the Gospels and see what transpired for the Lord from beginning with Him being on the Mount of Olives with His 12 or 11 apostles just after the Last Supper where he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, and that's where Judas led a mob of the Jewish leaders to come and find Jesus, kissing Jesus on the cheek, betraying him and identifying him to those that would arrest him that were a part of the Sanhedrin. Then they arrested Jesus. Jesus went willingly, and then his apostles scattered, and then they proceeded to subject Jesus. This is very late at night, all the way into the early morning on Friday. And he's subjected to six mock trials. Three before the Jews and then three before Pilate and his Roman court. And it went on for hours. And that's where Jesus was mocked and vilified. And eventually in the morning, uh, after many times Pilate saying that I find no fault in this man, Pilate condemned him to death. That he'd be given the, the death sentence. And by that time, it was early in the morning on Friday and the fickle mob all around Jerusalem was growing and swelling more and more and they wanted to see the commotion as they knew something was going on and they began even Jesus' fellow Jews crying out for his blood we have no king but Caesar crucify him crucify him is what they were ended up crying probably some of these people were the same ones who just the week before wanted to crown him as king at the glorious triumphal entry saying Hosanna in the highest calling him the blessed king so that's why it's the fickle mob. And so Pilate condemns Jesus to death and the Roman soldiers take over and they were responsible for executing Jesus. And so they get him a big piece of wood and it says in the gospel that Jesus carried his own cross. He bore his own cross through the city as he was led by these probably four or five Roman soldiers. One, a very important high-ranking official called a centurion, Roman soldier, pagan, Gentile leading Jesus through the streets. They arrive on or in the place called Golgotha. The place of the skull is literally what it means. It's outside the city of Jerusalem, but not far from the city of Jerusalem. Just on the outskirts of the city. Called Golgotha or the place of the skull because that's where people were executed. And no doubt, maybe there were bones all over and even craniums and human skulls uh, visible for all we know because that's what the word means in the gospel in the Greek text. And the Latin translation of Golgotha, the place of the skull, is Calvary. That's where we get that word. Cal Jesus died at Calvary. It wasn't, Scripture doesn't say it was a hill. But Calvary means Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, the place of death. And that's where uh, the Romans took him and laid him down and began to crucify him as they put the nails in his hands and in his feet and then hoisted that cross up and a sinner, a criminal on his right, and a criminal on his left, so that there are three people being executed. Jesus, the sinless Savior, in the middle. And on the right and on the left, guilty 
criminals who are wicked and worthy of death, who deserve the death penalty, who maybe were on trial with Barabbas for all we know. He also was a wicked, murderous thief who was let go by Pilate in place of Jesus as they supplanted one another. And so that's where we pick up the story now from the four Gospels. It is now 9 a.m. in the morning. Don't be confused by different translations of Bibles that you might read, especially study Bibles, because they will contradict each other at times in terms of what time of the day Jesus got crucified, how long he was on the cross. And what lends to the confusion is the Gospel of John gives a lot of time notations using a different time standard than the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And, But what I have represented here is we're going to look at these seven sayings of the Lord Jesus Christ while he was hanging on the cross. And they are profound and they are significant and they're relevant and they're applicable to our lives today. But Jesus was crucified probably about nine in the morning. Keeping in mind he hasn't slept all night long as he was subjected to these mock, brutal trials. But he's still awake. He still has his senses about him. As a matter of fact, he's still totally in control every step of the way. It's absolutely amazing. So Jesus is crucified at nine in the morning and he hangs on the cross for six hours. The first three hours, not much happens and few words are spoken. And then midway through at about 12 noon, God the Father intervenes with visible judgment as the entire area of Jerusalem, maybe even the entire area of Israel, who knows, maybe the whole world was darkened in a very instant by God the Father himself. And that darkness looms until 3 o'clock in the afternoon until Jesus is taken off of the cross. So keep in mind, he was hanging on the cross for six hours that day. So let's go ahead and look at these seven sayings of the cross out of our Gospels. But I want to begin by way of introduction. In John chapter 1, verse 29, three years before this event, before Jesus died, and before actually Jesus began his public ministry, before Jesus ever said a word or taught publicly, before Jesus ever performed his first miracle, in John chapter 1, verse 29, John the Baptist at the time of Jesus' baptism, while John was baptizing in Jerusalem or near Jerusalem at Bethany in the Jordan River, preparing the way of the coming Messiah, teaching publicly, crying out publicly, preparing the way of the Lord. In John 1.29, it says that when John the Baptist, and apparently he talked loud because he liked to talk and scream at the, at the top of his lungs. So he was a true preacher. And it says one day while he was baptizing near Jerusalem at Bethany, probably in broad daylight, and we know there were crowds around, and even the Jewish leadership was around from the context of John 1. Uh, John said, Behold the Lamb of God. In other words, John was publicly talking to others, pointing out who Jesus was. People didn't know Jesus. He hadn't taught yet. He didn't have public fame. And John was the first to point out, Behold, here comes Jesus. Who is he? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of of the world. And shortly after that public declaration, Jesus' three-year ministry began. And that statement is just utterly profound because it speaks of everything about who Jesus is and why he came. Behold, the Lamb of God. When a Jew heard about a lamb, they knew it meant death. They knew it meant sacrifice. They knew it meant 
blood had to be shed. They knew it was blood shed because God, a holy God, required the death and the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sin. So there was no question in their mind that lambs were associated with sacrifice and blood and that a death was impending. And then John says, behold, not a lamb of God. He says, the lamb of God. The one and only lamb of God. The greatest lamb of God. The ultimate lamb of God. The lamb of God who fulfills all Old Testament prophecies and types as it predicted Passover after Passover, the Savior would come and be the ultimate perfect sacrifice for the sin of man. And that's what John the Baptist declared from day one. Behold, Jesus is the Lamb of God. He comes from God. He is from the Father. He is from heaven to offer Himself on behalf of sinners. And what is so amazing, we look back in hindsight and read that verse, and we oh, we know what that means. What we fail to think about and reflect upon is when John the Baptist said that, no one knew the significance of it that heard it. No one. Not even John the Baptist. Because shortly after this, as John does his ministry, he's going to end up in prison. And he begins to doubt and question and even sends his disciples, his messengers, is Jesus the one? So even John didn't understand all the full implications of a statement, behold, Jesus is the Lamb of God let alone his disciples, some of which heard that statement. Because through the entire three-year period, the apostles themselves didn't want to believe or even think that Jesus was going to die. They just denied and dismissed that truth altogether till the very last moment. And then especially the religious leaders that John proclaimed that in front of, the scribes, the, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, those who more than anyone should have known what the Lamb of God who's come down from heaven should mean, they didn't know what that meant. They didn't know who Jesus was. They hated Jesus. They rejected Jesus. They didn't want him as a sacrifice. They didn't even think that a Messiah had to die in their day, despite all the Old Testament prophecies. So that is profound, what John said. And what it does is it catapults us from the beginning of Jesus' ministry that Jesus came to die. Jesus was born to die. And now three years later, we have reached that climax, the culmination of his very birth, his very ministry, and all of world history. Jesus came to die for sinners as the blessed Lamb of God. And nowhere uh, better than the seven sayings from Jesus while he's on the cross interprets the meaning of his death for his disciples, for the religious leaders, and for all the people that were there and heard it, and even for us today. And so that takes us to our outline there regarding the seven sayings of Jesus as he hung on the cross from nine in the morning till three in the afternoon. During Jesus' six mock trials that probably lasted for hours, you would note in the Gospels as you read it that Jesus said very little. As a matter of fact, when he was before Herod in one of these trials, it says Jesus answered him nothing. Jesus was a silent lamb led to the slaughter in the words of Isaiah 53. Pilate is peppering him with questions and interrogating him. Uh, the Roman soldiers are as well. And other religious leaders in the Sanhedrin are as well and interrogating him and gnawing at him. And it's just amazing as you read his restraint. But more than restraint, it's divine silence, really. It's divine judgment. And there's this holy silence throughout these hours and hours that go on of his arrest, of his trial. He says things very periodically and very cryptically, and but for the most part, he's silent before his accusers. 
And then he does say things while he's on the cross. And in light of that, that great balance of his total virtual silence during his arrest and his trials and the public mockery of him up against the seven words that he says while on the cross. Jesus' silence during his entire passion accentuates the profundity of his last seven statements uttered from the cross, which amount to a divine commentary on the meaning of his death. Why did Jesus die? Well, it is sufficiently answered just in the seven statements that he will make during these six hours. So we'll go ahead and look at these together. The first one is in Luke 23. And you can turn there, Luke 23. And we'll start Luke 23, verse 34. I brought us up to speed where he was. So they just simply crucified him, meaning they put the nails in his hands and his feet and hoisted up the cross. And Verse 32 says, Two others also who were criminals were being led away to be put to death with him. Luke says these other two are criminals. He says that also in verse 33. They were criminals. And then again in verse 39, he says they were criminals. And he means both of these men, these two thieves. They were criminals. They were guilty. Of The book of Isaiah says they were wicked men, these two men. Luke is being emphatic that those uh, that he was crucified with were guilty. But he's the holy, sinless one in the middle. Uh, but we'll pick up on that in, just a, in, in a little bit. Um, so verse 32, two others also were crucified. They were criminals, were being led away to be put to death with him. Verse 33, and when they came to the place called the skull or the place of death or Golgotha or in Latin Calvary, they, were cruci they crucified him. That's the Roman soldiers, by the way. There are four Roman soldiers, John says, and it could be four Roman soldiers plus one centurion, so maybe five Roman soldiers. And they put the nails in his hands and in his feet. At the skull, they crucified him, and the criminals, one on the right and one on the left. And you can just imagine, and now we have what is the first of Jesus' seven sayings right here. And uh, number one, Jesus prays, a priestly petition. What is the first thing Jesus says or does as he literally gets the nails in his hands and his feet? And we know from all four Gospels in terms of the chronology that this was the very first thing that Jesus did. The very first thing is he got nails in his hands and his feet or the very first thing is that cross was hoisted up. These words came out of his mouth. And from a human perspective, we would think it would be rage, bitterness, unforgiveness, crying, accusations, pointing the finger at other people for how wrong and unjust they were for crucifying an innocent man. That isn't what Jesus said, and that's why this is so amazing. It amounts to a prayer. And it's a prayer to Almighty God the Father. Uh, verse 34. As he got crucified immediately, but Jesus was saying, and Luke uh, gives us a literal rendition, Jesus was saying. In other words, he probably prayed more than we see here. But specific words that definitely came out of his mouth, the first word is his father. He's praying to the father. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. This is absolutely amazing. And so that's why I call this a priestly petition. 
the first thing Jesus does in light of those who accused him falsely, condemned him falsely, killed him falsely, he does not seek revenge. He seeks forgiveness. And so he prays to the Father. And this is how Jesus always talked to God. It was God the Father showing this new, amazing, supernatural intimacy that he had with God the Creator. The Jews in the Old Testament, they didn't pray to God like that. They didn't call God by a specific name. They feared God too much. They either called Him Yahweh or Lord, or they didn't even say His name at all out of fear of being killed by a holy God. And here Jesus publicly for three plus years is calling God His Father. It's a beautiful intimacy, and it incensed His enemies as they called Him a blasphemer. How dare you? Who do you think you are? This is totally legitimate. Jesus is part of the Trinity, the eternal triune God, and He pleads and cries out to His Father for mercy, not for Him, but for sinners who are before Him. Sinners who are guilty of having Him executed. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. This is profound. This is amazing. This shows a supernatural love. This is the greatest form of love. This is a kind of love that humans cannot conjure up on their own. Forgiving their enemies, and especially forgiving their enemies, forgiving the very ones who would kill them, forgiving the ones that would murder them, forgiving the ones that would hurt us the most. Human natural reaction is retaliation, bitterness, and unforgiveness. This is a supernatural kind of love that comes only from heaven. It comes only knowing from God, and it comes only from having the Holy Spirit in you as a Christian who produces this supernatural love of God through forgiveness towards sinners who are guilty and undeserving. And that's why Jesus came. He came to provide forgiveness for sinners. And so tonight when we celebrate communion, that's one of the main things that you can pray in your own heart and thank God for. God, if you know Jesus Christ, Father, thank you for forgiving me of my sin. And Lord Jesus, thank you for your prayer as the high priest. Because that's what Jesus is being here. Hebrews calls him a high priest, the greatest high priest. What is a priest? A priest is someone who goes to a holy God on behalf of sinful people. And that's what Jesus did. That's what he's doing here. He's doing the work of a high priest, of the greatest high priest there ever was. He's interceding for sinners. And by the way, in Isaiah 53, a prophecy that predicted 800, 700 years before the Messiah would come, that the Messiah would die, and that the Messiah would intercede for sinners, says Isaiah 53, verse 12. Absolutely amazing. And that's the first words out of his mouth as he prays this priestly prayer with supernatural love, supernatural forgiveness. And the New Testament calls us to forgive others the way we have been forgiven in Christ. We have access and availability to that supernatural capacity to love. That is the mark of a Christian. Isn't that amazing? Absolutely amazing. It sets us apart from the world that doesn't know God. They can't forgive the way we can forgive. It's a basic mark of true Christianity. Supernatural forgiveness. The same way Jesus forgave. A couple of other notable things here. Father, forgive them. For they do not know what they are doing. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. You know the beautiful thing is? Jesus is perfect. Jesus is one with the Father. Did you know that every time Jesus prayed, Jesus' prayers get answered? Isn't that awesome? Because I know that doesn't happen with me. It doesn't happen to any of us. 100% of our prayers getting answered. Well, I guess if, if you consider a no an answer. Get a lot of those. Um, or you're praying the wrong way. Or you're praying selfishly. As we so often do. But... Jesus prays perfectly every time. He prayed this prayer. He prayed it to the Father. He prayed it specifically, and it was answered. You can see the answers everywhere. Father, forgive them for those who put him on the cross. Who put him on the cross? Well, the Roman soldiers and Pilate and 
the Jewish leadership and the Jewish people and people and sinners all throughout history, which includes us, doesn't it? That's why he went to the cross. Jesus is not ignorantly or naively praying that every person who would ever be born would be saved and forgiven of God. That's not his prayer. He's praying for specific people. Father, forgive them. And every person that he prayed for, for their, that they would be forgiven, they got forgiven. And you go into the book of Acts and you see many of these people who were in this crowd who watched Jesus die and many of those Jews who were in the crowd screaming for his blood and even some of the Jewish leadership that condemned him to death. The book of Acts says many of these people came to know the Lord from 3,000 to 5,000 to 20 plus thousand of saints, Jewish believing saints in Jerusalem shortly after his ascension. Absolutely amazing. That is the answer to this prayer. Father, forgive them, the very ones who crucified Him. And God continues to forgive those who put Him on the cross, which includes me. I love this prayer. And then one more point here. They do not know what they are doing. In other words, some of these people who are going to be forgiven were ignorant. They ignorantly, to some degree unknowingly, played a part in having Jesus illegitimately crucified and executed as a sinful criminal. So there were people in the audience who were ignorant, who had a part in this. There were people in the audience who were not ignorant, and they were totally culpable, totally guilty, and they did this knowingly and willingly. And that's many of the Jewish leadership that Jesus told them in John 8 and other places, that because of your rejection of me, in light of what I said, that I am the, the Savior, you shall die in your sin. They would not be forgiven. So the Jewish leadership that was spearheading this, they weren't doing this in ignorance. But there were many gathered around the cross who were ignorant. Well, who were some of these people? I, I think of the thief that we're about to see in point number two. These two thieves, they didn't know who Jesus was probably. They're having conversation on, on the cross for six hours talking about Jesus. One of them changes his opinion about who Jesus is. They just thought he was a criminal like they were. So they were ignorant about who Jesus was. And actually one of those thieves ends up in his, he's ignorant, but he ends up getting saved. And then another person that was ignorant that we know from, that was standing at the cross was the centurion. John says there were four soldiers. It could be there were four soldiers, underlings, and they had, there was a centurion who was also at the cross according to Matthew 27. A centurion was a Roman soldier who was a high-ranking official. He was somewhat prestigious. He had a lot of authority. He had a lot of power. He's called a centurion, where we get the word century or a hundred. He was responsible for a hundred soldiers. He had 100 of his own soldiers at his beck and call. Now, all 100 were not here. He only needed four of them, apparently, in this execution on that Friday. But a centurion is in chart. Matthew 27 says that there was a centurion that was assigned by Pilate who was in charge of the soldiers and in charge and supervising the execution of Jesus. And so you've got this Roman centurion who is at the cross, who is responsible for the execution, who's watching over it, who was probably one of the soldiers that came in during the trial there at the court of Pilate, which means this centurion will have been around Jesus for a period of up to eight hours straight from the time he was in court, on trial, condemned, even declared innocent by Pilate, and this Roman soldier was a pagan. He was a Gentile. He was not a Jew. He was not trained in Old Testament scriptures. If he was religious at all, he was an idolater. His lifestyle was probably one of gross immorality. And he was a brutal thug, we know from earlier on in the Gospels before this scene at the cross because it says that the soldiers 
once they got a hold of Jesus, after Pilate declared him to be condemned to death, they took over, the Roman soldiers did. And the centurion would have been responsible. And the first thing they do is they take him in a private room, grab the whole Roman cohort around, they surround Jesus, they strip him naked, they throw a purple scarlet robe on him, they put a crown of thorns on his head, they give him a a reed or a scepter and put it in his right hand and bend their knees down, mocking him, calling him king. Utter mockery. It says they spit in his face at the time. It says they began to beat him repeatedly with the stick or the scepter they stuck in his hand till he was a bloody pulp. One of the Old Testament prophets says they pulled out his beard. This is before he even gets to the cross. Then they finally put him on the cross and the centurion is the one responsible for leading the way down the entire public foray of the city of Jerusalem to outside the city in place of execution. And so the centurion is leading the way, fighting off the crowds. And all he's doing, he doesn't even know who Jesus is. He's just following orders from Pilate and from Caesar. He knows nothing about Jesus. He just assumes this man is guilty. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been arrested and he wouldn't be getting the death penalty. Of course he's guilty. That's all this centurion knows about Jesus. He leads him down, leads him to the place of Calvary or Golgotha. And he is responsible for the execution. The Roman soldiers were the ones that crucified him. And then immediately, oh, and they took off his robe and stripped him almost naked, then hung him on the cross. And then they took his garments and they divided them into four. And the centurion is leading this. He thinks it's funny. He's mocking Jesus the entire time. And it says why Jesus is hanging on the cross for hours. People are walking by, passers-by, mocking him, the Jewish leadership and some in the Jewish crowd. And it says even the Roman soldiers were mocking him, which no doubt was probably this Roman centurion who was in charge of the execution. Mocking him, taunting him, calling, if you are a king, come on down. And it says that the Roman soldiers uh, mockingly put uh, sour wine in his face that he wanted nothing to do with. And this went on for hours and hours and hours. Six hours as that Roman centurion was stationed at the foot of the cross overseeing the death of Jesus. That man was ignorant. He didn't know what he was doing. He didn't know who he had on his hands, the innocent God-man. But thanks be to God for His grace and a Savior who pleads with the Father. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Let's go on to blessed saying number two from Jesus while he's on the cross. Number two, Jesus issues a secure salvation. Staying in Luke 23. It's that thief on the cross we referred to earlier that Luke says is a criminal. Criminal, criminal, criminal. Isaiah calls him wicked. He's evil. Matthew 27, 44 says, at the beginning of the crucifixion, the robbers, the two robbers, were continuously hurling insults at Jesus. Mocking him like everybody else in the crowd saying, if you are a king, if you are a savior, come down and save yourself. Both of the thieves were saying that. Then hours go by. One of these thieves is watching carefully. One of these thieves is listening carefully to the words of Jesus. They're seeing how he responds and how he does not respond. And one of these thieves, as a result of Hours of watching the blessed Savior just feet away from him by his side being crucified. And no doubt the work of the Holy Spirit that is convicting this sinner, this thief on the cross. He is overwhelmed with his guilt and being in the presence of the Holy Savior. And he has a change of heart because God changed his heart. And as a result, Jesus issues a secure salvation 
assurance of salvation to this once wicked, guilty criminal or thief. Look at verse 39 of Luke 23. And one of the criminals who used to be hurling insults at him, who were hanged there, was hurling abuse at him. Uh, They were both doing that at the beginning, but then one of them stopped. Uh, That one just kept saying it. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal, the other thief, but answered, but in contrast to the other one who was mocking Jesus with disdain, the other criminal answered and rebuked that criminal who was mocking Jesus and said, do you not even fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, verse 41, and we indeed justly, we are guilty, we are being crucified because we, do, we deserve to die. We're criminals, we are sinful. So he admits that. We're getting condemned justly for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man, but this man, he's talking about Jesus, has done nothing wrong. Isn't that amazing? How God worked on his heart through the circumstances that transpired. The conviction of the Holy Spirit overwhelmed him and he came to see the glory of who Jesus really was. This is a confession of repentance and recognition that Jesus is the sinless one. And in response, verse 42, Jesus says, Oh, he pleads to Jesus and says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus, save me. He, he called, when Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, he knows that Jesus is the king of heaven at this point. Jesus means savior or God saves. So he prays to Jesus. You got the, Jesus praying to the father and you got this criminal praying to Jesus. If you were a Jew or in that day. You only pray to God, otherwise it's blasphemy. Jesus answers that prayer. He accepts prayer. He accepts worship. He is the God-man. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. It's the 11th hour. This criminal, this thief, he's about to die. Who knows how old he was? Maybe he lived a, a life of 30 to 40 years of just crime and sin and wickedness and for himself and in the last moment pleading for the grace of God in his life. He doesn't have a good work to show for it. And look at Jesus' amazing response, verse 43. Jesus said to him, truly I say to you. This is Almighty God talking. When Jesus says, truly I say to you, it means you can count on it. It is guaranteed. It is going to happen. Absolutely. You can bank your soul on what I'm about to tell you. Truly I say to you authoritatively with the very voice of Almighty God, today, this day, says some translations. It means today, right now, on Friday, Passover Friday, this very hour. This very day. Today you shall be with me in paradise. Isn't that awesome? Jesus promised that when this man died because of his faith in Jesus as the Savior, that all of his sins were forgiven. And the moment he breathed his last, when he woke up his eyes, he would wake up in heaven in the presence of God. Jesus says you're going to be with me in paradise. We know this is heaven. In 2 Corinthians 12 verses 1 through 4, the Apostle Paul calls the third heaven paradise. Paul was able to go up to the third heaven, which he called paradise, where the very presence of God. And Jesus says, today, you're going to be with me in paradise. Today, you're going to be with me in heaven. With Almighty God and the triune God of the universe and me. And when people ask, where's heaven? You know where that is? That's literally where Jesus is, isn't it? You're going to be with me. Where did Jesus go when he died? Yeah, he didn't go to hell. He went to heaven. That's what he says. Yeah, he made proclamation. He made uh, judgments and those kind of things according to Peter. 
But we do know for sure on Friday, on Passover Friday, Jesus ended up in heaven. He was with the Father. He was with the saints of all time. He was with this thief. And by the way, when Jesus got into heaven that day in, on Friday, I mean, there's a lot of people there. And there's a gazillion angels. Do you know how big of a crowd a gazillion angels is? It's really big. And I just love that Jesus says, you're going to be with me. You're going to maybe enter in with me when we get to heaven. Just the beautiful intimacy. So this wonderful truth from Jesus just tells us so many things. That there is no such thing as soul sleep. When you die, you either go to heaven or you go to hell. That's it. And we also know that Jesus, when he died on the cross, when he woke up, he woke up in heaven. And that sinner, that forgiven sinner, was with him. Another great truth this tells us is we can't work our way to heaven. It's not a, a matter of how many good deeds and how many bad deeds I have between the two. It's not based on our works. It's simply the gracious work of God. Earlier on in the Gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter 5, the religious leaders rightly, correctly said, only God can forgive sin. Now, they did that in response to Jesus, who publicly said to a sinner, your sins are forgiven. They became incensed and they accused Jesus of blasphemy. You can't forgive sin, Jesus. Only God can. And Jesus said, that's right. In other words, I am God. Jesus has the right, the authority, the ability to forgive sin and to grant eternal life to a sinner because he is God in the flesh. Beautiful truth. Jesus issues a secure salvation. The third saying of Jesus, number three, go there. Jesus extends an assured affection. An assured affection. Let's go to John 19. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John at the end of the Gospel of John. John 19, uh, 26 to 27. We don't know how long after 9 a.m. this is. and We know people are walking by back and forth, taunting Jesus the entire time. And so Jesus' few words interrupt these false accusations and ridicule that are coming his way. And he's, he's giving out forgiveness. He's giving out blessing. He's giving out salvation. He's giving out grace. And then here he gives out just blessed personal affection. Uh, look at verse 26. At the foot of the cross, most of his apostles had scattered. Not all of them. John, John the apostle was there. So John ran out for a while. He followed Peter. He followed the trial, hung around. And John ends up at the foot of the cross. You've got to give him some credit for that. Just That was courageous. He was afraid, but that was courageous. And he's with his Savior to the end. And in his gospel, he's called the disciple whom Jesus loved. John's just talking about himself, that he, that he loved Jesus, he was close to Jesus, he was related to Jesus, he's one of Jesus' best friends while he was on earth. And they had wonderful relationship, and there was even a blessed affection between the two. And Jesus is at the foot of the cross, and at the foot of the cross are some of the women, at least four of the women who were committed to Jesus, no doubt some other maybe rare disciples. And John the Apostle was at the foot of the cross as well. And while Jesus is on the cross, suffering, bleeding, in anguish, dying in pain. Most humans, if not all humans, in that kind of scenario and situation would lose their senses about them. Or most of us would just be concerned and consumed with ourself and our needs, right? Especially if it was an unjust deed, not Jesus, the blessed Savior. The entire time for six hours, he has nothing. His mind is not on himself. His mind is on other people. His mind is on sinners. His mind is on what people need and their needs, not his needs. What a blessed, other-oriented Savior. And here's the epitome of his example on a practical level. He looks down at the foot of the cross and he sees his mother, Mary, who is a believer. She, she 
trusts in Jesus for all that she knows. And there's John the Apostle as well, who doesn't understand the fullness of everything at this point, but he's committed to his blessed Savior, Jesus. And there they are together, Mary and John. Fearful, confused. Here's Mary at the foot of the cross in Jerusalem is not her home. She's miles from home. She is away from all family members. Joseph is dead at this point. She is a widow. More than likely, Jesus' four or five younger disciples, they aren't there either because earlier in John, it says they did not believe in Jesus as Savior, their brother. Jesus had siblings who did not believe in Him. Mary had children who did not believe in Jesus the Savior. She had been abandoned by her physical family. And as a result, Jesus is going to meet her familial needs on a practical level. With this amazing statement in John 19.26 and following. When Jesus therefore looks down from the cross at his mother and sees Mary. By the way, in Luke 2.35, Simeon predicted three years before that she would be pierced. Or no, 30 years, 33 years before when Jesus was born. That at one point in her life, she was going to be pierced in, the, in her soul with a sword. This is it. Her blessed son being crucified before her very eyes. Who was absolutely sinless. She's pierced to the soul. So he provides practical comfort. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved. That's John the apostle standing nearby. He said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Woman, Mary, look at John. John is now responsible. He's part of your family. Your family from Galilee isn't here. Your unbelieving uh, children are not here. But John, he, he's your son. This is, Jesus is introducing the depth of the, the spiritual family. That's our real family. Maybe you have people in your family that don't know the Lord. But you have fellow believers you know who know Jesus Christ and you are one with them. You are all children of God. That's even a greater family. That's a more intimate family. That's really your real family. That's our eternal family. It's our spiritual family. And Jesus is bringing that to their understanding. Mary, behold, John, your son, and to the beloved disciple there, to John, he says, uh, behold your mother. In other words, John, take care of Mary. Take her into your family. She's your spiritual sister, your spiritual mother. You are now. This is your family. Stay together. Take care of one another. And this speaks to the heart of God. This is just affection. This is affectionate love from Jesus. Verbal affection of how much he loved and cared for them. And it's so practical. And it just tells us once again that God loves and cares for widows. God loves and cares for orphans. God loves and cares for those who are lonely and those who have suffered a recent death or pain in their life or in their family or with a, a, a loved one. And he wants to meet that need and he can. And that's how God looks down on us today to meet our practical needs with words of affection. So Jesus extends a assured affection. Let's go on now on the other side to the last four statements that Jesus makes. And by the way, these are all at the very end. There's a long period of silence and now it's six hours has gone by and it is now almost three o'clock, 12 o'clock. The entire sky went dark as the judgment of God and three hours of silence go, goes by and Jesus says nothing. And then at the very end, there's just this flurry of statements, four of them. At about 3 o'clock, just before he dies and gives up his breath. So let's look at these four statements that come out rather quickly. And the first of these four at 3 o'clock in the afternoon is number four. Jesus exclaims, cried out with a loud voice, a prophetic proclamation. John or Mark 14, 15, uh, 34. This is in the other Gospels as well. Uh, Mark 15, 34. So Jesus is there. 
We don't know if he said other things while he's there, but this is all that is recorded. Three hours of silence goes by, and then finally out of nowhere, it's not just a whisper, it's not just an utterance, it's he cries out at the top of his lungs so that everybody there, and maybe even it reverberates and echoes into the city of Jerusalem itself for all we know. Jesus explains a prophetic proclamation of, of Mark fifteen thirty four, And at the ninth hour, this is 3 o'clock in the afternoon, just before his final breath, Jesus cried out with a loud voice and said, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Anybody that was Jewish knew immediately, wow, he, he's, or most of them should have known, he's quoting Psalm 22, verse 1. One of the most important, well-known psalms in the entire Old Testament, a psalm of David, written 1,000 years before Jesus was born. Such a profound messianic psalm, predicting the death of the Messiah. And it starts out with that very verse. Jesus is literally quoting Psalm 22, verse 1. He's not just making this up because he's frustrated. God, why are you leaving me here on the cross unjustly? That's not what he's doing. He is willingly, deliberately, knowingly proclaiming Psalm 22, verse 1, the prediction that the Jewish Messiah would be crucified. And you can read that psalm on your own. It is absolutely staggering and amazing because what it describes is all the events that are going on for the six hours around Jesus' cross. Even the mockers who are mocking Him. And then it culminates in verse 16, Psalm 22, where it says, They pierced my hands and my feet. They say that the Romans invented this kind of crucifixion that Jesus was undergoing maybe 200 B.C. And yet a thousand years before He was crucified... This psalm says, they pierced my hands and my feet. Absolutely amazing. And Jesus is proclaiming at the top of his lungs, especially to the Jewish leaders, I am the Messiah who came to die for sinners in fulfillment of your scriptures. And this is a prayer to God. And it's the only time in Jesus' life that we know of where when he prayed to God, he didn't call him by Father. It's my God, my God. It's the distance now that he has with God the Creator and God the Judge. There's a separation now between a holy God and Jesus who has now assumed the sin of the world upon Himself. And He has become sin for sinners. And a holy God can have nothing to do with sin. Now God the Father has to pour His wrath on His blessed Son, the sin substitute. And as a result, there's a separation. And Jesus knows that. He welcomes that. And He recognizes it and says, My God, my God, my intimacy with the Father has been broken on behalf of sinners. In fulfillment of Old Testament Scripture. That's what's going on here. Jesus exclaims a prophetic proclamation. Just about every detail that Jesus underwent was fulfilled Old Testament prophecy, by the way. There's so many we can't even point them out. It goes on again at 3 o'clock. This ushers out of his mouth and then immediately uh, is the next one. Number five, Jesus cries in helpless humiliation. Uh, John nineteen twenty eight. John 19, 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, he did everything he needed to do. He born, he lived a perfect life. He ministered for three and a half years. He did all of his miracles. He proclaimed the gospel. He had become, he subjected himself to uh, the Passion Week. He suffered anguish of dying on the cross for six hours as a substitute for sin. And now his time had come. His work had been done. It's three o'clock in the afternoon. And after this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished in order that the Scriptures might be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. 
I am thirsty. I said Jesus Christ in helpless humiliation. The fact that Jesus, who is the, the water of life, who promised people in John 4 and John 7 that he would give them uh, water that would, they would never thirst from. He is the living water, the eternal water. The fact he is the one that created water. And here, the giver of water, the water of life. How ironic that he would say, I thirst. I thirst. Reminding us that Jesus was 100% man. He was 100% God, but 100% human. And he had to be to be our perfect substitute. Let's just attest to the fact he is the perfect substitute for sinful people. Not only that, it says knowing Jesus knew he was in total control of his death and every detail. No, what did he know? He knew that all scripture had to be fulfilled. He knew Psalm 63 verse 1 predicted that the Messiah must thirst at the time of his death. And he quotes from the psalm, Psalm 63 and other psalms, Psalm 63, 1, I thirst. That's a quote right out of scripture hundreds of years before. So look at John 19, 28 and 29 right after that. Jesus said, I thirst. And then verse 29, a jar full of sour wine was standing there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and they brought it to his mouth. Sour vinegar, actually, says one translation. And in the Old Testament, Psalm 69, same psalm, verse 21, it says that they gave me vinegar. That was another prediction they would do to the Messiah. And it says they extended a branch of hyssop to give him that vinegar. And hyssop was what they extended at the time of the Passover in the days of Moses when they put blood on the doors, a, a hyssop branch. And here... They're using a hyssop branch on the blessed, suffering, bloody Savior right out of Exodus 12 at the time of the Passover. Every detail pointing to the fact that Jesus is the Lamb of God. Helpless humiliation, yet God in the flesh. Number six, Jesus decrees a perfect provision. Staying there in the Gospel of John, verse 19, verse 30, when Jesus therefore had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. It is finished is one word, tetelestai. From the word telos, that which is perfect, that which is complete. And this form of the word tetelestai means paid in full. Paid in full. We actually today have papyrus fragments from 2,000 years ago from that region of the world that say in Greek, tetelestai and other verbiage where it says and it's these their tax receipts that were given in that day tax receipts that say paid in full and the word used is tetelestai it's a familiar word that the people would understand paid in full my work is paid in full my salvation work has been paid in full i've satisfied everything the father the holy god has required by virtue of my perfect life my perfect death and now my imminent resurrection it is finished it is done no more work needs to be done to accomplish salvation and forgiveness for sinners i am the perfect and complete savior it is finished even the very tense of the verb that jesus used it's called a perfect tense tetelestai and all that means is it's a past completed action it's his work is totally done and complete one time never to be repeated again and the second part of it implies that it's ongoing continuous results so the efficacy of his death continues on and on and on and on and it is continual it will never cease in other words when the blood started flowing out of the savior that moment it flowed all throughout history until his second coming that every sinner regardless of when they lived in history could cry out to jesus and they will be forgiven of sin just as much as anybody who lived in jesus day when he died 
It is finished. Salvation has been accomplished. Jesus has done it all. If you want to be saved from your sin, you bring nothing. The only thing we bring is a prayer of confession and a prayer of asking Jesus to save us because he has done it all. He has done all the work. It is finished. A perfect provision from a perfect Savior, the God-man. And then finally, number seven. It says in John 19.30 that Jesus said it is finished, and then he bowed up his head and he said one more thing. And Luke 23 tells us what that last thing is. And here Jesus cries a confident completion. It's confident. Again, he is not panicked. He's not having fear. He is not full of bitterness. He is totally in control even when he's hanging on the cross. He is in charge of his death. He has absolute total confidence in the Father. He has absolute total confidence in the plan that has just transpired. 100% total trust in God, his Father. Luke 23, verse 46. Jesus crying out with a loud voice, proclaiming it as loud as he could so that everybody again would hear. Going back to not my God, my God, but Father, the, the intimate one. I've completed my work. I'm back to my intimacy with you, Father. Please welcome me when I rise again and ascend into heaven to the glory I had with you before the foundation of the world. He so much looks forward to that and he's crying out to his Father again. And Father, he says, into your hands, into your hands I commit my spirit. Meaning that the moment he breathed his last, he ended up in heaven with the Father, which he called paradise. And shortly thereafter, that criminal who got saved would be there with him, with the Father in heaven, a confident completion. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Notice Jesus said, I commit my spirit. I lay down my life. I am in charge of my life and even my death. As the Savior, as the God-man, Jesus was always totally in control. Jesus, you read through the Gospels of all that's going on in Jesus' life, and he is never in a panic. He is never out of control. He is never in a hurry. And he's in control even of his own death the irony there is just unbelievable they wanted to kill him three two and a half years earlier at another feast they tried to get their hands on him to kill him but that would have been premature and jesus said that ain't going to happen and he ran and fled and then here at the end during the passion they decided the jewish leaders whatever we we want to kill him but we can't do it this week we can't do it during the feast we can't do it with this many people around and what happens jesus basically makes them kill him this week during this feast, on this holiest of days, the very Passover of Friday, and Jesus said this at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, which in Jerusalem historically was high time when the high priests slaughtered and offered the most of the lambs that were being slain that day. Not a coincidence, but everything, every detail being dictated by Jesus who was totally in control. He was the Lamb of God. He was going to die on Passover at high noon at 3 o'clock as the greatest lamb that was ever slaughtered on behalf of sinners. That's why it's a confident completion. Father, I commit my life to you. That reminds me of John 10, 11, 17, and 18. He says, no man takes my life from me. I willingly lay it down, and I willingly raise it up again. He was, who raised Jesus from the dead? He did. He raised himself from the dead. Absolutely amazing. This is our blessed Savior. He rose from the dead. He got buried. He rose again from the dead. He ascended on high, and he reigns as king of kings all over the world today, all over the universe, and he is seeking and calling sa uh, sinners to himself as the blessed Savior. And many of us have experienced this wonderful salvation that Jesus has imparted to us, and that's why we celebrate the meaning of his death tonight. And in closing, let's all turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 
verse 21, which is one of the most amazing verses in the entire Bible that speaks of the meaning of Jesus' death and how as a substitute he took the sin of the world upon himself. He took our sin and had somehow spiritually, supernaturally, it transported onto him. And then he took his righteousness and transferred it onto us if you're a believer. This divine exchange. Our sin, all of it on him and all of his righteousness on us. And if you're a Christian today, this is how you stand legally and positionally before a holy God. Totally forgiven, totally clean, totally enveloped and bathed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ with all of your sins forgiven. Boy, that is reason to celebrate tonight communion, isn't it? 2 Corinthians 5.21. He, that's God the Father, made him, that is Jesus. God the Father made Jesus, who knew no sin, he was totally sinless, to be sin, to be the sin substitute on our behalf. In order that, for the purpose of that we sinners, undeserving sinners, might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Isn't that amazing? Absolutely amazing. If you know Jesus Christ, you are righteous before Almighty God. And when we go to communion tonight, let's thank the blessed Savior for that wonderful truth. And so um, to prepare our hearts for communion, I just want to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 to remind us of why God gave us this wonderful gift called communion. And the Apostle Paul uh, says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, um, verse 23, For I received from the Lord Jesus that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, this was Thursday night, yesterday, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He was predicting that he was going to die for sinners. Verse 25, In the same way he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we have that wonderful opportunity tonight to have communion. If you know Jesus Christ personally and you've experienced his salvation, then you are welcome to participate in communion tonight. So I'd ask you, we'll do it a little different tonight. Um, we have four stations there in the back. And uh, when I dismiss this in just a second, go and you can just go back and grab uh, the cup and the bread. Take that to your seat. And then when everybody's seated, then we will partake together. And, and while you're waiting, you just pray in your own heart and thank the Lord Jesus for his death and resurrection on your behalf and the forgiveness of your sin. It's a good time to confess to the Lord as well. Sins of the day or the last week that he would cleanse you because he will. And celebrate that while you're sitting there. And then we will all eat and drink together and then after that uh, we'll close with a song together in our worship so let's go ahead and partake of communion thank you for listening dr mcmanus is an author seminary professor and pastor teacher of grace bible fellowship for more information about dr mcmanus other messages or resources please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.